0: Hi, all, welcome back to Polar Times. It's me here again, Jack. Just a reminder that this is part two of our special Polar Week episode. Happy Polar Week! If you haven't listened to part one, which is where we do a debate on the subject of and the theme of change, then that is also available to listen to today. You don't necessarily have to listen to that first, apart from perhaps the panelists introduce themselves. So if you'd like to know who they are, then maybe do listen to that first. But otherwise, this episode, this half of the episode is where we answer all of your questions from the public. Uh, We have quite a lot of fun with it. So hopefully you enjoy. From all of us at Polar Times, happy Polar Week. Okay, so that brings us to the next section of the podcast. This is a brand new feature that we are trying out, especially for you in March Polar Week 2021 this time. And we have lots of questions which have been sent to us by members of the public. Some of you emailed, some of you contacted people who organize the podcast. Some of them are from my friends and family, I freely admit. <laughs> and we have a, an absolute range of you know, all kinds of questions in terms of how cerebral they are, I suppose. And some of them are kind of fun and some of them are kind of deep. You know, it'll be fun to listen to. Uh, Obviously, some of them apply to the Antarctic. So only Steve and Mattia will be able to answer those. And some of them are Arctic, which is Ingrid in your realm of expertise. And then a lot of them apply to both as well. So you can all have a crack at those. And then we've just got one or two at the end, which were kind of fun. So I saved them to the end so we can finish on kind of a, a light note <laughs> okay so um so i'll probably just alternate between poles so our first question is an antarctic question and it says why are some parts of the antarctic melting but other parts of them are increasing like in terms of the ice thickness
1: i guess i can start quickly and if i, I miss something steve can add it um i feel like the are different aspects of climate change, that um, which is also why I prefer the term climate change to global warming, is that when we, we're talking about a radio change, so not only is the temperature is globally increasing, but you have a local spatial variability. And also, because when it's warmer, the ability of air to retain moisture becomes larger. So basically, what this means is you can have more rain in clouds and so you also increase precipitation which can lead to uh, locally areas where the ice sheet would look like the accumulation is increasing this being said i'm not sure if there are really areas in antarctica where the ice sheets are really increasing or if they're just remaining stagnant i feel in this regard it's more or less a uh, uh, the, the time scale that we were able to measure and the precision at which we're able to measure is not very significant except for those areas in the Antarctic Peninsula where you have more of a, of a calving. And it, it's, it's also a bit different than what you see in Greenland with those images of rivers of water on the ice. In Antarctica, what's mainly happening is those glaciers are kind of going away and you have more and more uh, pieces of ice going away. Uh, which so it's a little bit less of a melting as we see it in the sense that it mostly happened at the bottom
2: i was gonna like on the on a kind of very basic level why is the antarctic peninsula more affected than the other areas and and in some ways it's just a it's a question of latitude because it's the furthest north of all the parts of antarctica but but it goes a lot deeper than that because it's also the part that is most affected by changes in the ocean circulation that, go, that encircle Antarctica as well so you get an increasing warm warmer currents onto the continental shelf and these these occur within the Antarctic Peninsula a lot and because it sticks out into those currents and also because the warm water is able to get onto the shelves and melt the, the ice shelves for example from below and once you melt the ice shelves it's kind of buttressing effect which uh, prevents which enables um greater flow into
0: the ocean than the glaciers okay fab i think that answers that question perfectly okay and next we have an arctic question so a short one who does the arctic belong to and i'm not sure what they mean by belong but i assume who claims any kind of sovereignty some people might be familiar with the antarctic treaty which we've talked about which is like you know claims it kind of neutral between a lot of countries um so yeah who does the arctic belong to if anyone
3: yeah, I wouldn't use the word belong in this case, but I guess what the question is, is getting at is kind of governance structures and uh, there are eight Arctic states, they are the member states of the Arctic Council and they are Norway, Iceland, Sweden, Finland, Denmark with Greenland, Uh, Canada, the US and Russia. So they are countries that have territory or oceanic areas above the Arctic circle. Um, But this is very much uh, kind of an an outcome of of those uh, institutional structures. So um, we can, of course, think about uh, when we're talking about belonging, that the the people who live in the Arctic region might or should have more of a say in, in making decisions for the region. That's an ongoing discussion. There are six Indigenous permanent participants, that's what they're called, Indigenous Peoples Organisations that also have a seat at the table in the Arctic Council, so that's really important. But one of the the main differences between the Arctic and the Antarctic is that the Arctic is governed by state structures, and the Arctic Council, of course, is very much a a state-led organisation where where leaders meet Um, so it is in some ways a very a very traditionally governed region in that sense despite all of the unique aspects of the arctic council etc it is it is governed by by states and borders are drawn um based on the UN commission of the limits of the continental shelf Um, i'm not sure if i got that entirely correct but um but uh, it's very much um through those existing structures
0: uh, okay, here's a question for kind of for both, but maybe a little bit more skewed towards the Arctic. And it's like, why are there populations of indigenous people in the Arctic but none in the Antarctic? I assume it's just geography, right? It was harder to get to the Antarctic for earlier people. Is that right?
3: Yes, I think you're right. I think it has to do with, with geography. And we talked about deglaciation and migration patterns and getting to Antarctica was perhaps not as as easy or as as obvious. I don't really know why you would want to if you were searching for for new land, then perhaps that's not where you would go. It's of course also not somewhere you could, could easily live if you didn't have the infrastructures we have now at the polar research stations. It's not somewhere you could you know, grow crops and and so on, whereas the the Arctic has been much more connected to other landmasses and and, um, uh, certainly areas of the Arctic are much more habitable in terms of temperatures and climates and so on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We kind of think of the Arctic as like wilderness, I suppose, but obviously that's not the case at all. It has like urban centers. There are towns and cities up there in all of those countries that you just named, like places that you've lived in the past so (laughs) it's totally not um you know like antarctica which is just a um you know you can't farm anything or anything like that there
1: yeah i feel like going on on this idea is if we uh, imagine that uh, the vikings were not able to settle colonies permanently in greenland uh, a thousand years ago it would have been exponentially more difficult in antarctica and maybe one aspect is even if people were able to just go there i think i read somewhere that there were no insects in Antarctica. I don't know if it's true. And I guess in this case, if you want to do any type of farming, if you don't have any insects, how are you going to have any pollinization, which is a key role in all of the agriculture? So I wonder to which extent also this would not be preventing you from having any type of settlements permanently.
0: There's definitely insects in the sub-Antarctic, I'm fairly sure, (laughs) but I'm not sure about the continent. Yeah.
2: I I think it's also, you know, you said before, but it's incredibly difficult to get there. The sea's incredibly rough. Um, So if people did get there in the past, maybe they didn't get back. and We didn't get to find out about it. So, yeah, it's just really rough.
0: (laughs) Yeah, as anyone who has crossed the Drake Passage is well aware. (laughs) Yeah. Up to another Antarctic question. So that kind of leads us on to what someone asked, will non-scientific personnel ever live there in Antarctica?
2: they kind of already do in a way um, because some nations have bases that are run by, for example, the Navy uh, for Chilean places, so in, in a way they're non-scientific um, there's also a, a settlement on King George Island which has a school which we visited when we were on King George Island so I think in a very small scale it already happens I don't know if there are any plans to increase the scale of the those kind of settlements, are, but but yeah, so in a way, it's it's already going on.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what that person, I imagine they were thinking, like, will it ever be colonised to the degree of there being, you know, cities as a solution to overpopulation, if we were going to think <laughs> sci-fi. I mean, you know, theoretically, that doesn't sound horrifically outside the realms of possibility, you know, we're going to Mars. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I've got no idea, I've never heard any plans. There's no prongs that I know of in the pipeline. <laughs> when,
2: we, when we've been on a couple of field trips, we've, we've often wondered that some of these, you know, some of these places, if you took away the ice, they would they would be very attractive in some ways for people to live. They're very spectacular, um, but whether it would be feasible, um, like long term, is a is a different question. I mean, it could, you know, we could live there potentially long term, but but whether people would want to is a completely different question the climate is not going to be significantly different or warmer for quite a long time but who knows you know a long term into the future perhaps
1: i mean um i feel like my response would be i i hope not but uh maybe one aspect is um i haven't been there myself but uh, what i've heard of uh, mcmurdo station is that it's already almost a little city and you can have all already almost a thousand persons there if I'm not mistaken you have an ATM you have bars so I guess like this would be maybe the this and also as you were discussing the Chilean and uh, Argentinian settlements would be kind of precursors of maybe having sort of cities there uh hope, I mean my hope would be that it doesn't happen or doesn't expand more than that but we'll see I guess
0: yeah absolutely and then on a kind of related question i suppose someone asked if anyone has ever been born in antarctica i've got no
3: idea
2: i think i think i remember reading about this in the news a couple of years ago and i think on the i think it was at the chilean base as well i can't remember when it was specifically but yeah i do remember reading about that and there are if you look it up on wikipedia it tells you there are 11 people that have been born in antarctica
0: okay (laughs) um
2: and i don't there aren't any, you know, full details of, of where or when it happened. But I do remember reading in the news that, that somebody was born there recently.
1: Yeah, I think both Chile and Argentina claims we, like, territories in Antarctica have uh, people that got born there. Uh, but again, n- no one that I know of.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would be kind of a cool claim to fame to say you were born in Antarctica. Someone said, what is the best and the worst bit about living or working on a research station or a research ship, I suppose we can talk about both.
3: So I haven't spent a lot of time on research stations. I have spent shorter periods of time on, on Arctic research stations and on, on ships, but not not real research vessels. So kind of been. Um, I went with the, the students on ice uh, expedition, which was uh, which is an educational journey, and they have what is in effect a, a borrowed uh, cruise ship. It's not as fancy as a as a cruise ship, but it's definitely more comfortable, I think, than than many research vessels. But I spent two weeks on on that uh, in two thousand nine. Which was amazing, but I think in terms of um, spending time either at stations or on or a ship is, I guess the the hardest part is that you are stuck on a, in a limited space with a limited number of people. And uh, but I also think that can be positive, right? Because you learn to to um, you know how to engage with people and and how to actually get along with people, and you often learn about um, others you might not have otherwise spent that much time with so you really it's uh, it's a really i overall my experiences have been positive but i guess that those are the challenges and of course with limited space there's also all of the associated things like there's a limited um, you know limited number of food items so you might get a bit sick of whatever it is that <laughs> is being provided if it's not quite to your tastes um uh, in terms of what exercise you can do all of those things um but
0: my experience on our research, it was that the food was quite good, but it was quite a lot of f- fried things. <laughs> so yeah, like you say, a bit heavy from time to time. I've been
2: to a few different, I was thinking about the different national bases that I've been to. So I've stayed on an Argentinian, um, Chilean, we've stayed on a Chinese base and a, um, obviously a UK and a Belgian base. Um, i think there's a couple more as well, but but I think the really interesting thing about staying on all the different nationalities is that the bases they they have the kind of characteristics of their nat- nationalities as well. And so, for example, we only visited the Brazilian base for a, a day or so, but it was very warm. You go to the UK base, it's quite cold. You know those kind of things. They're quite typical. So there's a lot of feeling of people trying to make it like home almost when you're on the bases, and that's the nicest thing because. You get to meet a whole new community of people that you would never meet anywhere else in the world. Um, when I was at the Belgian base, they were still build, building it, um, and there were a lot of volunteers who'd come down from Belgium and, and spent the whole summer, um, Antarctic summer, building the base. Um, so that was that was really nice, and the food was also amazing because they had some um, michelin style chefs cooking the food and then they prepare it and they give us vacuum packed food to take out into the field as well so that that as a as an experience it sticks out quite quite prominently in my mind because um, you know it's it it was very unusual i think and um, not saying that the food at the other bases isn't good i mean that that is actually the thing that sticks out more than anything else is the quality of the food on some of the antarctic bases and and the amount of it is is huge as well (laughs) Personally, I, you know, what's, what's the worst bit? I would say, then the noisy generally, and you know, maybe you don't sleep as well as you might do at home or something like that. And if you're on a ship, certainly, I, I personally suffer from seasickness, so that's not my favourite place to be. But yeah, I mean, all my experiences have been very, very positive and very interesting on a different, different national basis.
0: How is it? How do you go about visiting another national base? Is that, obviously, I have quite limited experience of the field, but we do you just visit? I've got no idea. How do you go about getting to other? Is there a lot of cross-international um, collaboration and stuff like that? I suppose there was a lot of um, international people working on the base I was at, but then... Um, yeah. They were the ones who were kind of like, you know, the logistics and operations and the support staff who are working for a whole season as opposed to the academics.
2: Yeah, I think it depends where you are. If you're on King George Island, it's very easy easy to visit each other's bases because there are quite a lot of them on King George Island, for example. Um, and, and on Fielders Peninsula, there are four or five that you can walk within, say, walking distance. And, and they kind of interact. So actually, one year in 2011, we got invited to take part in the Antarctic Olympics, for example. Oh, which, wow. I'd never heard of it. Didn't even know it existed um, until we, until I found myself representing the UK at chess, which, was, uh, again. <laughs> which, wasn't, which wasn't very successful. But, but, um, and then we also took part in the. We didn't have any. You know, there were only two of us, so we can take part in the team sports that were going on between um, the Chinese, the Uruguayans, the Chileans, and the Russians mainly. Um, also, the South Koreans came across, and, uh, and sometimes the, they would get visits from the Polish base, too. So there's quite a lot of interaction on, in that particular area. I think if you, if you end up working on a base like the Belgian base, it would be part of a project that was funded um, through a scholarship uh, to a colleague of mine. So we ended up flying there as part of that. For the, the time we were on the Australian base, again, it was part of a funded project. So if you get involved in these like wider collaborations and bigger cl- international collaborations, you can end up working at those bases, um, depending on your subject area as well. But, but I think you know, King George Island is a very unique situation where people move around between the bases quite a lot. There's a lot of interaction between the bases because because they're very close to each other Um, and also some of these sometimes it just happens accidentally we didn't have our our field tents delivered to us or they weren't we weren't able to get them in on time um so we ended up at the chinese base for a month before they could they could arrange the logistics to get the the tents down before we before we went into the field um so so some you know sometimes deliberate sometimes accidental but everywhere we've been have been very friendly very welcoming to us
0: okay yeah that situation on king george island sounds a bit like is that based on svalbard i might pronounce it nialisand where there's like a like a kind of a base for lots of additional like a field station for lots of different nationalities
2: it's it you can you can also i mean yeah i mean if you if you set up a project which involves different nationalities you can you can request access to different people's bases as well i think so it just depends how you know there there are lots of different ways to work
0: sure and also like you say in the field, there's often logistical quirks that happen, which end up taking you to various places. You know, like, I think someone, you know, the ships never really go, well, they go where they plan to, but then always things happen, you know, there's a medical emergency or whatever, and you end up in visiting different places and stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah
2: I should also say that we had, like, one of the, more, my favourite times on a base was at the Argentinian base, and and they were amazing. And it was, uh, every, every Saturday was pizza night. And, and dancing and things. So it's kind of every every base is very different. Um, they operate broadly in the same ways on the kind of surface level, but when you get there and you start interacting with the different people there, um, you, you know it's it's a very unique experience. I'd say.
0: Yeah, that was one of my personal favorite things about the base that I was staying on, the, all their kind of little traditions and quirks and special days that they do every year. That was yeah, very enjoyable on station life. How about you, Mathieu? What is your favorite or least favorite parts of, Oh, well, none of you have said your least favorite parts either of living on a base or a ship. Oh, I suppose you said ceasingness. So
1: <laughs> how about you? It's it's funny. I have uh, quite similar experience to Stephen, but for very different reason. In the sense that I've been to a lot of places. Um, so I've been to the Austrian station Casey, to Du uh, Mont Durville, to another French station not too far. Uh, also to Mario Zucchelli, the Italian station. And all of this because I've, I'm working mainly at Dunsie, which is really far away in the center of Antarctica before being able to go there you need to go to a station on the coast and then go in the center and then you have kind of a structure with all those big stations acting as hub, uh with plane like flying from one station to the next so like you you happen to visit a lot of the station traveling from one to the next and so the first time i well, like maybe last time i went to antarctica i first flew to Mario the Kelly with a, an Airbus that landed on sea ice which is kind of crazy already for me and then I flew to this French station which is still on the coast so Dumont-Durville for like an, with a with a bachelor so like a, already a, a very small plane compared to the Airbus and then I actually uh, and this I guess will lead to another question later but I actually drove uh, one of those traverses from the coast to the station inland so all those things make me like having a lot of those different shield experience that were uh, very interesting. One of the one of the nice aspects was, um, I mean, of course, the, the food is like kind of an amazing aspect and a, a little bit like having been to all those stations, I was able to taste so many types of different food and cooks and habits. Like uh, I remember that in Casey, they had three different cooks that were alternating. So you had a lot of variety. While in the French stations, they usually only have one cook that does everything. But as you would expect from a french cook like it was not half bad <laughs> uh, um so yeah all of those aspects were actually quite nice um i remember one of the uh, christmas dinner was basically the french and the italian cook making a competition of who was going to make the best dishes because the domsey station is uh, co-handled by france and italy and so like there were like Really making a competition so we had all the best dishes with all the best additions of, the com- of both countries which was uh, quite nice and a little bit less even so like one of the things I'm quite specific so for me like going back both time I went to Antarctica I went back with uh, ships and this was kind of hard and also one thing that for me is quite hard is uh, for at least for antarctic shield Walk. this happens usually during uh the winter months for northern hemisphere so like december january and so it's kind of difficult sometimes to also be aware for this period where usually people i mean at least i expect to go see my family and uh, also sometimes my friends and so it's a little bit of a sad note like when you're a uh, uh, a little bit kind of alone in your tent in polar region and you know that everyone is basically celebrating christmas but yeah so like i guess those two aspects are quite hard
3: can i jump in on the topic of, of food um because i on the time that i spent on the students on ice ship was just again just two weeks so so nothing in the grand scheme of things but we had amazing food i was really really so impressed and i can only imagine how much food they must have brought with them that we as passengers didn't see but you know being able to provide us with fresh fruits for for those two weeks we were I think around 300 people all together on the ship at least and and being able to provide such a wide diversity of food but I've thought about it a lot recently because I don't know if any of you have been watching the Tarot TV series that is currently on BBC iPlayer it's about the Sir Franklin expedition that got lost in the Northwest Passage so we were kind of entering that same region and, and that's um, I mean the the TV show is completely fictionalised it's a horror TV show but uh, one of the big big um, uh, kind of questions about that expedition and what happened to them that there was speculation about uh, lead poisoning from the, the tinned food and just the, the limited um, foodstuffs that they had with them and uh, I'm so grateful that today we have the ability to bring with us all of this food, even if it's somewhat limited I think we are uh, very lucky
0: go. I didn't realise food was going to be such a big <laughs> topic on everyone's favourite parts of polar research but it, yeah, you're right, it is very impressive how the logistics work behind everything to just, you know, make life livable and enjoyable on polar stations, indeed yeah, yeah, okay uh, I have another question kind of for both polls. Um, this question asking, is it possible to make polar research more environmentally friendly or greener is what they've written. So is it bad anyway, or there's a lot of kind of transportation of stuff, I suppose, which is, you know, quite a big carbon footprint for both regions, for, you know, tourism and academia and all kinds of stuff. Is it possible to do anything differently? Anything better?
3: Yeah, I think this is one of the big questions that we're always faced with um, in terms of, you know, if we're traveling to places to study climate change, we might also be contributing to it. And it is a paradox and I think something that we as researchers have always thought about, but I, I think we have been... Uh, fortunately actually been thinking even more about now during the pandemic where we haven't been able to travel and have seen that some things like meetings and conferences and discussions and knowledge sharing can be done online so perhaps some of the travelling that we've done could be limited or could be changed um, so that it's more environmentally friendly but then we've also seen that certain research um, or certain studies have been really challenged by the fact that people haven't been able to go up and, and collect the data so i think it's really highlighted what travel if that's the specific uh, kind of environmental impact we're thinking about the the specific travel that we do for research what is needed and, and also um, conversely what we can perhaps change or, or at least limit if possible i would say that
2: yes it is and there's quite a big push at the moment say so, for example within within bass towards a zero carbon and that's a goal that's kind of in, being implemented through a series of policies. Um, and it, it cu- cuts across quite a wide range of different activities um, from logistics through science, and how, you know, how the things that Ingrid mentioned about traveling to meetings as well. And so a lot of the Antarctic bases are pushing towards using renewables um, and moving away from some of the kind of older uh, fuel based options that they used in the past. And a really good, actually, another really good example of this is the Belgian base, because they were the first zero-emission uh, base. So everything there is solar powered or wind powered. And when I was there, they were producing excess uh, energy so much so that they had to just basically heat the air because it was it was it was too efficient on Sunday So it, it it can and it does work, and it is possible to to improve um, our carbon footprint in the Antarctic itself. And a lot of work has gone into that over the last. I
1: you yeah i guess a very similar aspect uh, uh, it's always very difficult to kind of uh, combine this fieldwork with efficient and climate friendly because it implies so much travel especially most of the oh not most but a lot of the countries that do research in antarctica are actually in the northern hemisphere so you always have to somehow get the uh, most of us are going to take planes to get there which takes already so long that if you were starting by a boat to go to the southern hemisphere it would be even longer uh, one big question is how to make this a little bit better and i agree like the, there are a lot of solutions that are being implemented and i hope that in the near future we'll have more examples of stations like the premium station which are very energy efficient
0: one thing that I love in terms of this kind of efficiency of transport is there's often like ships of opportunity, like it's possible to put scientists onto, um, you know, tourism vessels and stuff like that. And I think that is probably a way that probably could be improved from just from what I see. I don't know if that anything, there are any plans to do that.
3: Yeah. And I think if we're thinking about, but if we're thinking about research in a slightly wider sense where we're not just thinking about the data collection itself i think we all have a responsibility to to also communicate what we find and in that way i think that is another way of, of thinking about how to make it more environmentally or, or climate friendly is actually considering what we can do as researchers to to make change also in our local regions um through our teaching when we speak to students when we speak to the general public if we do outreach activities i think all of that is also that's also part of thinking about how to make polar research environmentally friendly is how can we impact decisions made elsewhere um, even if we're not in the polar regions we can certainly be heard um, in terms of sharing what we found when we perhaps were there.
0: Okay Fab, Um, we have another question and this question says does polar science, and we'll take that as like polar life in general, um, not just science, uh, struggle with diversity
3: I think polar research as as much of academia has been has had a, a challenge of, of diversity but perhaps polar research in particular um, it's traditionally been quite um, white so not very diverse in terms of race or gender as well yeah I think fortunately there's a lot of really positive moves to challenge the stereotypes that we might have had of what the polar research should look looks like and I know that you on the Podcasts have actually had some really interesting conversations about this and thinking about what can we also do to um, to um, include a wider array of, of voices when it comes to research.
2: I've been involved in the Bass Polar Horizon just recently and um, also involved with some of the work the Bass is doing in terms of increasing diversity within the polar regions um, from, from a kind of UK perspective. And as part of that, we did a survey or back to this survey, and the statistics are quite interesting, I'd say, or <laughs> well, perhaps a little bit shocking in terms of participation in UK polar science for different different parts of society that haven't traditionally been involved in it. Um, so B- BAME, uh, disability and LGB- LGBTQ+. So for B- BAME, um, as wider society, um they make up 60% of UK society, but only 3% of um, UK polar science. So it's quite that's the biggest. Actually, no, that's not. Because disability is 90%, and they make up only 1.8%. So the statistics for those are: does it struggle with diversity? Yes, it still. That would indicate that yes, it still does. Um, for LGBTQ+, LG uh, wider society is about 5% in. Uh, UK higher education is actually higher, it's 7% representation, presentation. But in uh, polar science, it's only 2%. So so yeah, across all of the of those uh, indicators, yeah, it does. And the, the statistics are there to back it up. And I think this is a, a theme that um, is being addressed across, uh, like Ingrid says, across the whole of the, the higher education sector at the moment as well, but particularly so for, for polar science. And, and we are trying to do better. And there are lots of themes that are being instigated there trying to make things better.
1: Um, yeah, I feel like uh, I agree with what's been said before. There is a, um, already a large bias in diversity in science in general, uh, probably also led by the fact that uh, most of the scientific results are still published by North America and Europe to this day, and which is reinforced for polar region both like in the US and in Europe, like the the presence of a minority and also of a LGBTQ people to those field work, but also the fact that those field polar missions cost extremely expensive and uh, mostly Europe and North America and some of the developing countries in Asia and in South America are able to to pay for them for also probably reasons that are not necessarily only from kindness of the heart that. Overall, like there is a huge bias um, in, like, I don't think Africa has a single station in Antarctica, but I could be wrong on that. And this is something which is obviously extremely uh, important to, to work on. One aspect is uh, when we were working in um, uh, trying to do this review of the IPCC reports on ocean and cryosphere and changing climate, we, we actually were only able to recruit early. So this is an, an initiative that was free in the sense that no one needs to, to pay. Like everything was online, wherever we, we organized training uh, without any charge with the people of the APCC. And we didn't get any application from Africa. We only get a few applications from South America and from Asia outside of China. And so this is something that like not only Are those missions expensive? Are those research very expensive? But also I feel there is a kind of an inertia that kind of leads people to maybe self-censor themselves thinking because like no one in my uh, environment worked in this type of research, why should I even try? I'm gonna probably gonna be rejected. And this is something like we at least in this very small initiative, because this is just reviewing the IPCC report with early career scientists from polar region, but we really try to reach out outside of the traditional apex network to be able to reach out to more people. And I guess polar research in general need to make an effort to try to reach out not only in the SCAR or the ask mailing list, but to reach out very globally, to be able to reach out to more people and like really try to make an effort that don't self censor yourself like there are a lot of things you can do uh, and where you we would be very happy to have people from all different horizons
0: that's excellent yeah yeah so to sum up it's not great but it's getting better but there's still work to do (laughs) like a lot of things yeah okay we have just a couple of fun questions and then that will swiftly bring us towards the end of our time um so yeah so these questions are just a little bit kind of more uh less deep thinkers i suppose and, and probably only one of you will need to answer them uh so when, this one was someone asked um is there actually a pole at the poles <laughs> like the big red and white stripe thing i imagine is what they're picturing <laughs> and they can't be in the arctic right because it's just oh is there no no there won't be but there, i'm sure there is in the antarctic isn't there a base at the at the south pole
1: Okay, I'm going to jump on this one. Yes, there is indeed the American station. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm Nixon, Scott. I'm, not, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing really badly, but that's there. Uh, and I think I've seen like videos of people just walking around uh, the things that they put off the pole, but I actually don't remember how it looks like now.
0: Yeah, I think I've seen those too. And I think they have it purely for the, the photo opportunity, right? I don't think there's any function to it or anything like that. But the Arctic is just ice, so I imagine there's no pole. Yeah, Google it.
1: <laughs> well, apparently there was a, a Russian flag for a while, but it probably moved when the sea ice moved. So maybe it's not at the good location if it's still there.
0: I think that was on, was that not on the sea floor, the Russian flag, from a few years ago.
3: Yeah, they this titanium flag on the seafloor, and you know, I was asked about this um, years ago on a radio program, and I had never thought about it before. Then, what happened to the flag after they left? Did they leave it there, or did they take it with them? And I actually don't know. Um, I imagine they probably took it with them, but um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh,
0: okay, this one uh, maybe a bit less fun, uh, but sort of a logistics question. What happens if you if there is kind of a medical emergency and you're on a base?
2: It, it depends. I think for medical emergencies, it depends how, how serious the medical emergency is. If it's a very serious medical emergency, then um, you would be airlifted uh, within say 24-48 hours, if possible, to the nearest continent, and usually that's South America or Australia or South Africa. It depends on the severity, and there are quite there have been medical evacuations over the last quite a few over the last few years, quite successful as well, and sometimes even in winter in Antarctic winter.
0: But each base has a doctor, don't they? Or a, a, Yeah. So a if,
2: it's a, if it's a, a comparatively minor medical emergency, I guess you might call it, um, then yeah, so it would be dealt with on base. But if it's not possible to deal with it, if it needs kind of hospitalisation, then that would yeah, you'd be evacuated to the
0: nearest continental. Yeah. So that wasn't, that wasn't a fun question, I suppose, but it's just <laughs> a bit more interesting. Um, so and then someone asked uh, do you know what I've got a sneaking suspicion that it might have been my sister who asked this question and she said can you make a slush puppy from the ice that you have and I was like well I'm sure you could but I'm not sure why you would <laughs> and I only put that in because Steve you kind of replied to this uh, you yeah you can you, yeah. Well, you can
2: obviously make slush
1: puppy.
2: that's quite easy to make but what is better is that you do if you add ice and snow and um to evaporated milk you can actually make ice cream almost instantly and we've done that quite a few times and that's quite that's quite a treat usually reserved for say something like christmas day um but yeah that's delicious on its own and you can add chocolate and things as well to make it a little bit more tasty
0: there you go and i'm pretty sure actually the ice they had behind the bar at the station i was at was just ice that they'd found <laughs> from a berg or something <laughs> so yeah there you go
1: <laughs> actually for on this topic um there is a, a like kind of a urban legend i don't know if it's actually true but this uh, french scientist claude laurius uh who was one of the one who uh used ice cores and um, the CO2 trapped in ice cores to study past CO2 concentration. Apparently, when he was doing a winter over in Antarctica, he noticed that his ice cubes made from local ice were bubbling inside his whiskey glass. And that's how he thought, like, maybe the ice cores are actually trapping ice from like gas from the past, and we could reconstruct past gas concentration from this. I-, I don't know to which extent it's true or if you already thought of that before, but this is a nice
0: story. That is a very nice story. I'm going to accept that as true <laughs> moving <laughs> forward. <laughs> that brings us to the final section of the podcast. We like to call it the polar plug. And this is where we give you, our guests, just a few minutes to talk about something, promote something, anything you like, just use our podcast as a platform to talk to the general public um, so we'll take in turns uh, ingrid would you like to go first
3: yeah, I don't have anything very specific that I'm working on that I that I want to promote, but I just, I wanted to, first of all, say thanks to you guys in Apex. And I wanted to say that anyone who hasn't looked at your website or, or been involved in some way should definitely check that out. You do a lot of really important work. And I think, in particularly when we're talking about diversity, there's some really good resources available. And um, uh, you know, thank you for all, the, all of you the work that you do. So that's my main one. The other thing it's actually coming back to the the thing I started with. So my favorite thing about polar research and the the wider community of, of interdisciplinary scholar and how friendly and and open and welcoming that is. So I'm very active on Twitter, and so I would I would recommend that people um, perhaps try and engage through social media because it is really a, a welcoming space. So the hashtag Arctic. There's always interesting conversations going when there's something that comes up in the news. there's a whole um community of of uh, people on twitter that will discuss that and um it's a way in which to get to know each other so even though we are perhaps geographically far from each other and now during the pandemic unable to to meet that's been a a real really positive thing is engaging virtually with with people so that's that's my main or two main ones
0: that's great thank you i love um twitter for science it's great yeah you're right (laughs) okay steve how are you
2: Um, yeah second everything that Ingrid just said and also I mean I don't have anything particularly that I want to plug for myself but at the moment the Scott Polar Research Institute um, scribe down in Cambridge is having a uh, a week of uh, called the Big Free Art Festival so if anybody's interested in uh, other aspects of polar science uh, you can uh, or artistic aspects of polar science you can go to their website and join in this week and they've got a lot of interesting activities going on there too
1: OK, Mathieu, how about you? Uh, for me, it's more like of a general call to, to everyone to uh, kind of take care of themselves and remain positive and optimistic. Uh, I feel like we really need this with uh, the past year. And even in general, kind of uh, as a climate uh, slash polar scientist, uh, Basically, I feel like I'm constantly the bear of bad news and constantly bringing like negative and sad stories. And it's important to remember that not all of the stories are bad and sad. And uh, a little bit coming back to a point you said earlier, like there are positive things happening in polar region or in the climate system. Uh, one thing, for example, that really brought me a lot of joy a couple of months back was a, reading about something i'm not an expert at all so like don't ask me any question about this but reading that there were like a large increase of the whale population in south georgia and this was like kind of a very cool like maybe the whale population is going to recover after the uh, massive hunting that happened a century ago and uh yeah so the arctic is changing the antarctic is changing and climate is changing and a lot of it is probably due to human activity Uh, but still like there are a lot of positive things, either in your life or like in science in general, and like yeah, uh, keep on those little things in your head when you're feeling a bit grim because the situation is hard.
0: Oh, wonderful. Thank you for that. Ending on a high. Excellent. News to bear in mind. Okay, that brings us to the end of this very special episode of Polar Times. I really hope that you, all of you listening have enjoyed it, and I hope you liked our new uh, format with the questions and everything. If you would like to get in contact with us to give us any feedback or to recommend a guest or to ask a question, do all your questions, um, you can email us. These are polar times at gmail.com. Once again, that address is... These are polar times at gmail.com or you can also tweet apex at polar underscore research and your questions will get to us. Uh, so all that remains is to thank my guests. Thank you everyone for joining me today on Polar Time. That's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for organizing this. This was amazing.
3: Yeah, thank you. This has been really fun.
1: Thanks, Joe. It was great. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.